The Dhamma talk this evening will be um, Tuesday the 11th of October will be on Blue Cliff Record Case 29 Dazwee's It Goes Along With Everything Else uh, It's good to be back in the Zendo again um, Most people know that um, I've last for four months or plus I've been having um, trouble with my right uh, sacroiliac joint was diagnosed uh, as having a dropped pelvis, the right side of my pelvis, and, and that's been put in place, and I've been doing stretching exercises, and um, the pelvis is aligned now, which is good, but I'm still getting um, inflammation of the, the tendons and the ligaments that have been stretched. So they're slowly getting better, but it takes quite a while. But I am back on the mat, at least for this Dharma talk. Um, during the period in um, May, especially May, June, um, when I was in quite a bit of pain from time to time, uh, the, wor- the world was sort of, uh, at times, was a little bit sort of heavy on my shoulders because it coincided with the rise of Donald Trump in America, <laughs> the horror show of American politics that was all unfolding, plus the um, the, the, the worsening refugee crisis uh, in Syria, triggered by Syria, and that's, that's ongoing too. Um, but at, at times like that, it's, uh, it's good to take consolation in this, the teachings of Zen, and I found um, solace in uh, looking back. Uh, I can take solace in our case tonight, does wheeze, it goes along with everything else. Because it really does. Uh, so this is the case. A monk asked Daizui, when the conflagration at the end of the Kalpa sweeps through and the great cosmos is destroyed, I wonder, is this one destroyed or not? Daizui said, it will be destroyed. The monk said, will it be gone with everything else? Daisui said, it will be gone with everything else. Uh, just a little bit of background from uh, Zen's Chinese Heritage by Andy Ferguson. Um, Daisui is the Japanese name of a Chinese teacher, Daisui Fazen, whose dates are 878 to 963. And he was a disciple of Chengqing Da'an and also of Guishan. And he's recorded to have experienced great enlightenment while still quite young. He first lived at Long Hai Temple in Sichuan and later he dwelled for more than 10 years in a large hollow tree at the side at the site of an old temple behind Mount Daisui. So as many Zen, Chinese Zen masters did, he took his name uh, when he became a teacher from the mountain nearby, Mount Daisui. We don't have a lot on, on Daisui, or Daisui, just a few um, dialogues. One, uh, when, he was, when he was young, practicing with Guishan, Guishan asked Dasui, 
you've been practicing here with me for some time. Why haven't you asked any questions? Das we said, what would you have me ask? Guishan said, oh, why don't you ask, what is Buddha? Daswi abruptly covered Guishan's mouth with his hand. Guishan exclaimed, you've truly attained the marrow. You've truly attained the marrow. That's an echo of, um, of Bodhidharma's uh, confirmation of his disciple, Hui Kerr. Remember, we had our Bodhidharma ceremony just last Tuesday, and um, one disciple said, um, Bodhidharma said of one disciple, you've attained my flesh. Then a second disciple, second, first disciple, you've attained my skin. Second disciple, you've attained my flesh. Third disciple, you've attained my bones. And for Hupwe Kerr, he said, you've attained my marrow. So it's high praise. And in his old age, next to Daswi's cottage, there was a tortoise. A monk asked, most beings grow bones inside their skin. Why does this being grow skins inside its bones? Daswi took off his grass sandal and put it on the tortoise's back. The monk didn't know what to say. That's the whole point. <laughs> it's a rather strange story, but that was the whole point. The monk was totally perplexed. What's this putting the sandal on the, the tortoise's back? Oh. It was meant to confound the monk. That's where he had probably been with his teacher, Weishan, for quite a few years and had been completely silent, just, just persevering, working on his practice by himself. Didn't feel the need to ask any questions. That's often a really encouraging sign in a student. Sometimes uh, people at workshops have a lot of questions about Zen. Ah, you know, what's the relationship between Zen and Taoism? Or do Zen Buddhists believe in karma? Or this or that? And often, but not always, but quite often, that people have a lot of questions on the intellectual level, then they don't stay long. You have to get beyond the superficial layers of questioning to the, the deeper, essential questions. Who am I? What is this? That's what Zen really addresses. And now, um, Daswi's uh, the end of Daswi's life. When a large number of people were assembled to hear Daswi, he contorted his mouth into a pain position and said, Is there anyone here who can cure my mouth? When I read this, I, I couldn't help thinking that Daswi might have had a stroke that paralyzed his mouth. The monks competed with one another to offer medicine, and when lay people heard about this matter, Many of them also sent potions, but Daswi refused them all. Seven days later, he slapped himself and caused his mouth to assume a normal appearance. Daswi then said, These two lips have been drumming against each other all this time. 
Up until now, no one has cured them. He then sat in an upright position and passed away. Um, think about that um, little dialogue when he was younger with, um, with Guishan, how he covered his, his teacher's mouth. Now he, he notes that his own lips have been flapping for years and years. Uh, all Buddhist traditions have meditation practices based on impermanence. Um, permanence is one of the three fundamental truths of Buddhism. Truth of suffering, truth of impermanence, and the truth of no self. And our present case contemplates impermanence on a grand scale. The destruction of the entire universe. There's a passage in the Vilamakoti Sutra, I think it's the Bodhisattva Manjushri. It says, Sometimes a Bodhisattva shows the Kalpa ending in flames, heaven and earth consumed with all else, so that people who think of things as permanent will clearly perceive their impermanence. Everything is passing. Everything changes. Nothing lasts. It all goes along with everything else. On a small scale, we can perceive the impermanence of our own body as we age. Uh, I just read today uh, just uh, an article on um, a friend and really a mentor, uh, Albert Wendt, the great uh, New Zealand Samoan writer who's in his mid-70s now and his body's starting to, to feel the effect of the years. And a friend of his told, said to him, we know, old age is not for sissies. Thich Nhat Hanh said, if we take refuge in things that collapse easily, we too will collapse easily. So the question is, what are those things that don't collapse easily? There's a, a poignant coda to our case. This monk who asked Dai Sui, will it be destroyed? And Dai Sui says it will be destroyed. Will it be gone with everything else? Dai Sui says, it will be gone with everything else. Evidently the monk refused to accept Dai Sui's teaching that it goes along with everything else and later travelled to another master, Tutsi Da Tong, and related to him his conversation with Dai Sui. Tutsi lit incense and bowed to the figure of the Buddha saying, the ancient Buddha of West River has appeared. Now this is an allusion to Sichuan where Da Sui lived. And he's actually, this teacher's bowing to Da Sui. Then Tutsi said to the monk, you should go back there quickly and atone for your mistake. The monk went back to see Da Sui. Probably had to travel quite a distance. But Da Sui 
had died in the meantime. So the monk went back to see the second teacher, Tutsi, took a long journey back. But when he got there, Tutsi had also passed away. In our case, the monk asks, when the conflagration at the end of the Kalpa sweeps through and the great cosmos is destroyed, I wonder, is this one destroyed or not? Our Kalpa is really a, a mind-boggling period of time. Eon, an eon is probably the closest English equivalent According to descriptions in Chinese texts, a kalpa is the time it takes for a block of stone measuring 40 meters on each side to be leveled to the ground when an angel descends from heaven once every hundred years and brushes the stone with her feathered cape. Long, long time. Indian cosmology says that the universe goes through four great kalpas in a constantly reoccurring cycle. And these four are the arising of the universe, the continuation of the universe, the demise of the universe, and then the destruction of the universe. And the monk in our case is referring to the fourth kalpa, a period of utter chaos where everything, every single, every single thing, is destroyed. When the monk asks, is this one destroyed? Of course, he's not just thinking about himself, but of our true nature, our Buddha nature. And his question shows his attachment. He's attached to the concept of true nature and he hasn't realized it for himself. He hasn't seen into this true self, which is no self. Therefore, thus we replies, yes, it goes along with everything else. A contemporary teacher, Yamada Roshi, says that with this response, thus we delivers a crushing blow. He's giving the monk the correct medicine for his disease although the monk doesn't realize it at the time. And Daswi's response goes along with everything else, makes this koan a powerful one in the Blue Cliff Record. The dialogue also appears as, as, with a second part in the book of Equanimity, Case 30. The second part provides a balance to it goes along with everything else. But in doing so, I think it's, it's not as strong. It loses a little bit of its effectiveness. But this is the, 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 second, the second half that's, that's in the Book of Equanimity. It may be the same monk or it may be a different monk. Anyway, a monk asks Longjur, when the conflagration at the end of the Kalpa sweeps through and the great cosmos is destroyed, I wonder, is this one destroyed or not? Longjur said, not destroyed. The monk said, why is it not destroyed? Longjur said, because it is the same as the universe.
in the absolute sense, not different from what Dysers said. There's a verse by Zen master Keizan. Even though the myriad things are extinguished, there remains something that is not extinguished. Even though everything is gone, there is something that is not exhausted. But we have to experience for ourselves that which is not exhausted and to know that it's the same as that which goes along with everything else. We have to accept both and not get destroyed, not get trapped in the duality of destroyed or not destroyed, gone or not gone. Uh, working on koans, we're forced to go beyond our logical, dualistic way of thinking. This um, destroyed uh, that dice we responded to the monk and not destroyed by what which was Longer's response. In a similar fashion, um, go back to Mu. A monk once asked Joshu, Chao Zhou, does a dog have Buddha nature or not? Joshu replied, Mu, which means no or not, not having. But then, Sometime later, another monk asked the same question, and this time Joshua replied, Ooh, meaning yes, does have it. Different monks, different responses. This Kalpa ending fire, this end of the world, uh, is a part of the great mythological and religious traditions. Sometimes the world's consumed by fire and sometimes by a great flood. And in the Christian tradition, via the book of Revelations, there's the apocalypse. However, it's only in the middle of the 20th century that the end of the world has become a distinct reality. First with the detonation of the atomic and hydrogen bombs and then with the nuclear proliferation during the 1960s and 70s. And we all know there's enough nuclear weaponry amassed today to destroy all life on our planet many times over. And the greatest nuclear emergency in our time, has been Chernobyl. It was not a result of war, but of human technological mistakes in a civilian nuclear power plant. And I've recently read a wonderful book by Sletlana, um, Sletlana Alexevich entitled Chernobyl Prayer. Sletlana Alexevich won the Nobel Prize for Literature last year, 2015. And she's produced a series of remarkable books in Russia, now translated into English, 
where she gathers together hundreds of voices, records many, many reviews with hundreds of different people, ordinary people, to, to get their story about particular events. And this one, um, Chernobyl Prayer, is, she interviewed lots of people who went through the disaster at Chernobyl. Just reading from the introduction to the book. The 26th of April, 1986, a series of blasts brought down reactor number four of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant near the Belarusian border. The accident at Chernobyl was the gravest technological catastrophe of the 20th century. This is what I didn't really realise. Chernobyl was, on, was in Ukraine, but by the Belarus border. For the small country of Belarus, population 10 million, it was a national disaster. It turned out that the winds during the time of the, of the um, accident were blowing into Belarus, away from Ukraine. Belarus is still an agrarian land with a predominantly rural population. Get, now get this, uh, this poor little country. During World War II, the Germans wiped out 619 <coughs> villages in its territory along with all their inhabitants. 619 villages. In the aftermath of Chernobyl, the country lost 485 villages and towns. 485 villages and towns had to be evacuated completely. People weren't allowed to return. And 70 remained buried forever beneath the earth. These were the 70 villages closest to the Chernobyl site. Whole villages had to be raised and all the earth in the villages had to be dug up and buried because it was so radioactive. Today, one in five people live in the contaminated zone. That adds up to 2.1 million people. Belarus is a country of forests and more than a quarter of its forests are located within the radioactive contamination zone. As a result of constant exposure to low-dose radiation, every year Belarus sees a rise in the increase, in the in, increase of cancer, child mental retardation, neuropsychiatric disorders and genetic mutation. Before Chernobyl, the incidence of cancer was 82 in 100,000. Today the rate has risen to 6,000 in 10,000. And of course this is an ongoing problem in Belarus. People continue to die as a result of, of Chernobyl. And the radio nucleids strewn across the earth from the reactor failure will live for between 50,000 to 200,000 years and longer. And a year or so after Chernobyl, Svetlana Alekovich visited, visited Chernobyl to interview people, some of who had returned and a few, who'd, a few old people who had actually had remained the last, basically the last people in their villages who'd refused to leave. And this is just two of 
two examples of, of um, just little parts of the interview. I was told the cats had stopped eating the dead mice, leaving them strewn over the fields and yards. Something an old beekeeper said remains in my memory. In the morning, I went out into the garden and something was missing. The usual sound had gone. Couldn't hear a single bee, not one. And they wouldn't fly out the second day and not the third. Later, they told us there was an accident at the power plant which wasn't far off. The bees knew, but we didn't. Bees knew, but we didn't. Another example. I chatted with some anglers on the river. They told me. We were waiting for them to explain it on the TV, for them to tell us how to keep safe. But the worms, just ordinary worms, they buried themselves deep in the ground, a good half a metre or one metre down. We couldn't make sense of it. We kept digging and digging, but we couldn't find a single worm for our fishing. It was uh, a refrain, a continual refrain uh, that she recorded from people who lived through Chernobyl was a greater a greater feeling of connectedness they experienced with the animal world. How they, they were suffering but they also saw how the animals suffered. There's a sense of all life forms being in it together with this disaster. Then of course there's the incredible sacrifice of the Russian firemen and soldiers that had to contain the fire in the reactor and then seal the reactor over time encasing it in a giant concrete sarcophagus. And when the reactor exploded, its roof was covered with burning bitumen and hundreds of workers and soldiers had to climb onto the roof and shovel the bitumen back into the open crater of the furnace. They called this um, battling the atom with shovels and spades. All in all, 3,600 3, soldiers and civilians worked on the roof of the reactor during this time. Uh, at first, robots from Japan and the United States were deployed to do the job, but they were quickly fried by the high doses of radiation. They were, they were knocked out in a matter of minutes. So it was up to the humans to do the job. And during the time, helicopters were constantly flying overhead, dropping sacks of dolomite and sand into the open reactor. The men on board had to lean out and look directly into the reactor to make sure that they were on target. And this is while clouds of radioactive dust were being churned up and circulating in the atmosphere. And of course the people who were in direct contact with such an incredible amount of radioactivity, um, they died. Hundreds of soldiers and civilians died horrific deaths in the weeks after the Chernobyl catastrophe due to the amounts of radiation that they absorbed. And their bodies were sealed in zinc coffins 
and buried under slabs of concrete. Their bodies were so highly radiated. And there were also 400 miners had to dig a tunnel under the reactor going through muddy water, a tunnel that could be filled with liquid nitrogen to freeze the ground, otherwise the reactor would have sunk down into the groundwater. So it really was just um, incredible, incredible human undertaking to contain to contain the disaster. It could have been hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of times worse if, if they hadn't managed to seal a reactor. And of course, the um, second nuclear catastrophe of our time is the one at Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant in March 2011. So the difference is that Fukushima, the Fukushima disaster was not initially caused by human error, but by the earthquake-generated tsunami, which flooded the plant and caused the nuclear meltdowns. But like Chernobyl, a cloud of mystery still hangs over the disaster. We still don't know what the effects are or will be of the leaked radiation from Fukushima, especially in regards to the contamination of the Pacific Ocean. Such disasters are really difficult for us to comprehend. Uh, especially this in, at Chernobyl, when it happened, it was spring. The trees were in blossom, the skies were blue, peasants were working in the fields, harvesting potatoes. Many at first believed that after the initial fire at the reactor had been contained, there was no further danger. Radiation is invisible, with no smell, no sound. It doesn't seem to be there, but it is. You can um, see, you can watch YouTube clips because they have now tours of Chernobyl, sort of, you can go on a tourist party with Geiger counters and get shown around parts of Chernobyl. And there's a sort of myth because of the, some people see it as a second Eden because the wild animals have come back, everything's overgrown, wolves have appeared, deer, all these wild forest animals have, have started to populate Chernobyl. But, each one of those animals highly re, uh, radioactive. And they'll probably die very painful deaths. Just the same as the fruit trees still produce fruit, but you can't eat an apple at Chernobyl because you'll very probably be, get, be poisoned. Everything's contaminated and will be there for, for centuries, will be so. Uh, back to our koan, it goes along with everything else. Um, Zhao Zhou, Joshu, approaches this matter of the end of the world from a slightly different angle. A monk asked Joshu, Before there was this world, already there was this nature. When this world is destroyed, this nature will not be destroyed. What is this indestructible nature? Joshua said, the four great elements 
and the five skandhas. The monks said, these can be destroyed, but what is this indestructible nature? Joshu said, the four great elements and the five skandhas. Uh, the four great elements, earth, fire, air and water, and the five skandhas, form, sensation, perception, discrimination and awareness, are traditionally given as the attributes of our individual, ego-bound existence. Surely that goes, but Chajo says, no. That's what remains, the four great elements and the five skandhas. Or as we chant in Master Hakwin's Sazen Wasan, this very body is the body of Buddha. The monk in our case, in our Hikigamraku case, asks, will it be gone with everything else? This it is absolutely not separate from everything else. How could it not go along? not be consumed in the calprending fire. According to Dogen, Huaynang, the sixth ancestor, said, Impermanence is itself the Buddha nature. Permanence is the discriminating mind. Impermanence is itself the Buddha nature. Permanence is the discriminating mind. I'll finish with a, a quote from Crowfoot, whose dates are 1830 to 1890. And Crowfoot was the chief of the Sitsiska First Nation in eastern Canada. This is what he says in his, as he was approaching the end of his life. A little while, and I will be gone from among you. Whither I cannot tell. What is life? It is the flash of a firefly in the night, the breath of a buffalo in the winter time. It is the little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. I will stop now and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless life passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond the measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of the Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot darkness gates beyond the measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of the Buddha, I vow to attain 
Thank you. 